Hello and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. As usual, James Bond is busy on assignment this week, so I'm your fill-in host, James Page, from MI6HQ, the website, and MI6 Confidential magazine. And this episode is picking up part two of the previous episode we recorded with David Lee of the 007 Dossier, Bill Koenig of the Spy Command, and Joe Darlington of Being James Bond. We hope you enjoy the second part. Here we go. Hey, so Joe, um, sorry you've been cut out of this, but I was going to say to, to kind of like bring you into the fold, um, Funker Pops, your take. You know, I used to laugh at the Funko Pops, I think like a lot of people do. And then one year, my girlfriend who who knows I love James Bond, but doesn't exactly know what to get or what's new or whatever, got me the whole set. And, you know, and I, I actually, they've, they've kind of grown on me since So I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of warmed up to the whole idea now. All right. So we've made, we've, you know, had a bit of fun with them in the past and, you know, mea culpa and, um, that they're actually releasing wave two. So Funko Pops will be back, um, after we announced their premature death in a previous episode. Um, and, and that, that, well, you know, as they don't biodegrade, they never die anyway. But um, as another licensor basically told us that the deal was done with them because of various personal issues. Um, but there was kind of a bit of a rejoicing in the Funko Pops community, like, ha, ah, those guys in the podcast were wrong and we're getting out. I'd just like to point out that the ones that are coming out were the ones from that they previously got signed off a year ago. So... <laughs> Yes, there's a wave too, but who knows if there's going to be any after that. I, I will say, you know, I will say this, honestly, I, I, again, I used to laugh at these things and I never used to understand who the hell would want these things, these little weird bug eyed looking things. But I, I do have to say that the, the round two that's coming out, like the look of them, I mean, they, re- they really are kind of getting the look right as far as the characters in the films. I mean, I, lo- I, I feel like I would just get them for the Lashif alone holding the, uh, right. <laughs> holding the rope. <laughs> So, uh, so basically, Joe, you're saying this is what you want for Christmas. It's a bit early, but... <laughs> or, or, or I will. I know I will get them, so I'm just making peace with it. <laughs> Somebody pointed out on Twitter that most of the costumes are wrong. Like Judy Dench from Quantum of Solace is wearing the outfit from 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 Quantum is actually from Goldeneye, and Craig's suits wrong and all the rest of it so mm. you know if we want to throw some more stuff at them we could for me that isn't the problem with funko pops right good news if you like them there's more coming out good news if you don't like them that might be it um yeah and well, they'll be done yeah so. enjoy them if you like them but uh, <laughs> yeah The only other piece of news that I wanted to cover on this was a recent Majesty screening down in um, LA a couple of weeks ago. And um, we were talking on the podcast about things you'd wish you'd seen on the big screen. And I'd never seen, in all these years, I'd never seen Majesties on the big screen. So, and then Bill, you mentioned that it was playing down in LA. So I instantly pinged Ben Williams, one of our writers who's in LA right now, and we decided to go and see it. Um, mixed feelings about that decision <laughs> um, so i apologize about the theater i knew nothing about that i just knew tarantino owned it that's the end of yeah. my knowledge 
Yeah, so to catch everybody up, the Beverly Cinema in LA, West LA, is owned by Tarantino, or he's a he runs it or something. Um, so there's a lot of grindhouse movies there. There's a lot of stuff from exploitation movies. A lot of Tarantino fare goes through there, as you'd expect. Um, couple notes to anybody wanting to go and kudos to them to putting old, you know, old movies on as matinees. Cause nobody else does that really. Um, especially in the world of the multiplex. Um, there's no parking within like two miles. Uh, that's, that's more than 90 minutes. So get a lift or an Uber, um, to the theater. Um, or if you want to miss the middle of the film, move the car, which Ben's girlfriend graciously did for us. The screen is not very big. The seating is flat. Um, so if somebody sits in front of you, you kind of have to like stretch up and then the guy behind you has to, to, to move. Um, <laughs> oh the print, they, they boasted it was an IB Technicolor print. Um, it was pretty awful. It was pretty bad. There was a lot of damage to it. The one thing I would say about it is the audio was fantastic. Um, the quality, as usually with the old prints, the audio is the first thing that you can kind of notice being like, it's usually mono and scratchy, but um, the audio was phenomenally good. But the other thing I'd say is that Beverly's theater, because the Tarantino connections definitely has an inbuilt audience, especially for afternoon matinees of the kind of guy that would go and watch Tarantino moving in the middle of the afternoon on a Wednesday. Um, So, some of the people in the audience clearly hadn't seen the film before, which was great. You know, welcome to watching what I think is the best or one of the best films. Um, but the reactions of the crowd to certain things that happened in that movie were not the best. So, you know, at the end when Draco punches Tracy to get her in the helicopter, there was a cheer and punching the air. She's not necessarily uh, the right reaction. And, uh, you know, when Lazenby uses, when Bond uses the, you know, the line like, oh, you were going to hurt me. Oh, that's what the idea was tonight. There was kind of like a, yeah, kind of oh, reaction. Um, oh, dear. And of course, um, don't want to go too far into personal details, but uh, the Ben's girlfriend who came with us, this was her first experience of watching a Bond film, period. Right? Not just a Bond film in the theater, but a Bond film. And that crowd having those reactions to that kind of stuff, not the best way to set off your exploration of the Bond franchise. I remember Ben yeah. sent a text message to us all, and my first reaction was eek. And then I said, but I do remember, and then I said, well, I do remember 50 years ago, and I, I'm not sure I emphasize that part enough. That was an actual laugh moment when it was in theaters in 1969 and in 71, 73, whenever the re-releases were, that was a laugh line in those times. Yeah. As a, as a slapstick laugh, I get it as a cheer because a man hit a woman, right? That's not so much. And, uh, and there's a definite difference. Um, yeah, it, it was definitely more of a laugh in a slapstick sense. Um, kind of to relieve some tension, uh, which had been building up in that scene. But yeah, I just, and I, I got the impression Ben might have been a little pissed at me for mentioning that, but I hope not. No, 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 no. But it was, it was definitely, um, it was definitely the audience was, yeah. um, was a little weird to me because I don't know about you guys, but you're either the, the only time, the times I see Bond on the big screen is it's when the movie's out and you do the, you know, the press screening, the cherry screening, the premiere, you go afterwards to the IMAX. And then it's when they have these, um, you know, reissues like, you know, like the BFI in London do. And it's usually just Bond fans in the audience, right? And plus ones. 
But this was like watching a Bond film, an old Bond film on the big screen with an audience that doesn't ne- aren't necessarily Bond fans was a way different experience to anything I had before. So well, James, you mentioned to us in a text message, um, there were also some trailers, I think, and there might've been some Matt Helm trailers, if I remember. Oh yeah. They were dreadful. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's the thing. Um, oh, how shall I explain this? Well, the, the way, um, the way it put it into context for me, for me was coming off the back of you and live twice majesties in the bond series is a little bit of a gear change right yes but in the context of the year it was released with the spy fi wave of european stuff that was coming out and everything was a spoof and a knockoff and a over the top thing and the matt helm trailers were just you i cringed during them and i don't normally care about this kind of stuff um and then you think, well, that this film was released at the same time as general audiences were also seeing this stuff. Boy, that explains at the time why Majesty's got some of the feedback I think it d- didn't deserve. Also, as a quick aside about the Matt films, of all the, the various non-Bond spy films, I think the Matt Helm films had the biggest impact on the Bond series because... To get Dean Martin to participate, they had to make him a partner. So if you look at the copyright notice, it says Meadway hyphen Claude. Meadway was Irving Allen, uh, Broccoli's former partner, the one who didn't like the Bond <laughs> novels. Um, and the, the, the movies were based on very serious novels, and they turned them into spoofs, like the, the European spy films. And... Um, Anyway, Dean, so Dean Martin was a partner, and Dean Martin took a relatively small salary, but he got a big percentage. And so he got paid more for the silencers than Connery got paid for Thunderball. And Thunderball was a much bigger film than the silencers was. But Dean, So here's Dean Martin getting paid more. Connery noticed this, obviously. And so that's when he's, that's why he started to agitate, to become a partner in the Bond series. And of course, you had Broccoli, who had one partner he didn't really care for. So like the last thing he was to get another partner. And so like, no, I will not do this. And long story short, the, the Matt Helm movies uh, made fault lines in the Eon camp worse because of it. And um, and the thing is, I discovered the the... I first saw the the Hell movies on television. So they were like, they took out like the worst of the misogyny. (laughs) Um, So, and I can enjoy the Matt Hell movies for what they are, but I discovered the the novels, which are very good because of those movies. And so if they ever did a Matt Hell movie, please make it based on the the novels in a serious way. But uh, who knows? You know, I have to tell you, it's kind of heartbreaking hearing such a such a bad experience watching that film on the big screen. I've actually had really good luck catching some of the old classics on the big screen. Uh, in fact, I just saw Honor Majesty's pretty recently, but it was at more of a, a screening room, and you could tell they were showing the Blu-ray. Mm. But I did catch it years ago on a big screen in Jersey City, not far from where I am. In fact, it's the first time I ever met Lee Pfeiffer because he was at the same screening. And they were showing a, right. a print, and I thought it was absolutely spectacular. 
because you really did see the, I remember the fight in the water in the beginning, the highlights on the, on the ocean water were so bright and clear. And then those big shots of his Gloria at the helicopter shots as you're coming in, were just absolutely spectacular. In fact, I've seen, not to go on a tangent, but I, I used to not really be a big fan of you only live twice. And I think it took me seeing it on the big screen that really did sort of make me believer because that big volcano scene when all the ninjas are coming down and you really start to see, mm. you got an appreciation of the big scope of that whole set. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's again, I, I love catching the classics on the big screen. It's really terrific. The first time I saw you only live twice, it was on a drive in screen. So, OK, it's like, you know, that's a big screen. Now, the, the sound mm. wasn't so great. Those little tinny speakers you put on your uh, put on uh, your window. But um mm. It was it was actually the bottom half of a double feature of uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you only live twice. Both released by United Artists. That's the only thing the two things had in common. So my parents took us to see it, and like I, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly bored me to tears. I mean, I was I was nine years old, um, and then when the Bond film came on, it's like whoa, like that whole thing with the space capsule. It's like okay, looking back now, it's like oh, the special effects aren't that great, but Trust me, yeah. a 10-year-old watching that for the first time, the John Barry music, like, holy mackerel. It's like, I was wide awake from that moment on <laughs> watching the rest of the movie. Mm. It does make you wonder if the, and this is a topic for another day, but if the films today are doing what they can to recruit the younger audiences. It's the problem Star Wars has, right? Going to the trades is they're not. They're not. Um, the other thing I think you guys both mentioned was um, – you got to remember that when those films were released, they were made for that screen. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because that was yeah. the only way you could see them. Right. Um, right. Today, are they as much designed for the cinema screen, or are they designed for the? You're watching it on your 4K TV at home. Yeah. But, yeah. But this this is something that um, we we touched upon before, but talking about technical aspects and it was uh why you know why do they stick to 24 frames a second in in the cinema when most people are going to see it on on television so uh it it would be easy especially if you're shooting digitally to to, um to to uh to, to switch to you know to 25 frames a second or 50 frames a second so you know, and and it and te- televisions can adapt now. Uh, the old televisions, you know, in the UK, it was you know t- twenty five, or it was twenty five half frames uh, a second, and US was thirty and so on. So I I, I don't I don't understand why now um, if uh, if you if you buy a film in Europe, it plays it fast does. because they don't need to, they, so. Yeah, but so um, yeah, because I was I started working in the 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 kind of the media and entertainment industry on the tech side at the time that DVDs were first starting to be mastered because I worked on Spider Man One and all those kind of things. Um, well, Spider Man One doesn't help you date it, does it? Because they've rebooted this franchise like four times. But um, <laughs> Spider Man One, to- Toby Maguire, right? Um, one point one, one point two, etc. Yeah, so. What they would do is they'd take the 24, film, uh, 24 frame a second film and then just encode it at 25. So in Europe, your film was running 4% faster. But, but they, I mean, that's the way they, they always did it with te- uh, films on television as well. Yeah. And I, I can understand doing that, but I don't understand why they you still know, do it. it, no. it in, in 1980, um, 
The Spy Who Loved Me went on HBO for the first time. Well, tell you what, I'm not sure it was the very first time, but it, they were showing it on HBO. And it was like, it had a running time of one hour, 59 minutes. But the movie had a running time of two hours and five minutes. And they were doing that, what do they call it, time compression. Everybody yeah. sounds just yeah. a little bit like a chipmunk. And it's like, yeah. that's right. Because what happened was, yeah, Moonraker is being shown for the first time on HBO. And then the next month they were showing The Spy Who Loved Me. And it's like, I couldn't believe it. It's just like, it was, why are you doing this? I guess because they figured, well, we can get it within a two hour running time and put something else on. But, uh, oh, it was terrible. Joe, on your, on your reviews of, um, on your recent YouTube reviews, Scott mentions that he's like watched some of the movies back in 4K and mm-hmm. started to see things that, you know, you couldn't see in the theater back in the day or on television, like the textures of the clothes and all that kind of stuff. But it also shows up some of the things they didn't want you to see. Yes. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I There are a lot a lot of things that, that would kind of get past you. I noticed as we were, we were doing the review of uh, You Only Live Twice, there were, when, when I watched the opening shot, you were just talking about the shot of the capsule being, clo- you know, being uh, kidnapped or whatever. I noticed that all of a sudden I was noticing all the little weird special effects. Uh, for example, the the cord that was tethering the astronaut. I never noticed this before, but it was a whole separate effect that it was sort of moving along at a different speed as the as the astronaut was. Oh. And so, yeah, you do see a lot of the chinks in the armor when you when you see things this way. Um, and by the way, speaking, you were talking before about how we're all watching the things on the TV and why not uh, change the format. I remember watching Quantum for the first time, sitting in the theater opening night, and I was sitting right around like the middle, you know, the middle of the theater, not too close, not too far away. And those opening shots of the car chase, I immediately had this sensation like, oh, no, I sat too close to the screen. And, right. I, you know, and I watched the whole movie that way. And then, of course, I a couple of nights later, I went back, tried it again. And I literally sat at the back of the theater, the last row. And still watching that opening car chase, I just said, okay, I guess it's not me. I guess it's just how it's shot. And I remember the argument back then being that everyone now is going to watch movies on their cell phones or on their iPads. Yeah. So that's why yeah. you're so much closer to the action. Uh, thank God they kind of gave up on that idea. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... Uh, it's, it's such a shame because the the, the potential for that sequence were, was fantastic. And I, I've said this again, and I'll say it many times again. Uh, but the, the way it was shot were, was just completely sure. wrong. Yeah, it just doesn't work. I'm reminded of um, David Lynch um, put out a little video a few years ago where he's sitting there going, I make films to watch in a cinema. And then he holds up a phone and goes, not to watch on your fucking phone. (laughs) (laughs) And and conversely, if you watch an old TV show, like, I mean, like really old, like 1960 or so, I got, I got this one just to make it short. So like this uh, great actress, she's made up to look like a witch and like the makeup is like over the top. It had a commentary track and like the guys are saying, now, bear in mind, this is being, you know, this was made when most people are like watching this on a 12 inch set, a 12 inch black and white set. And um, yeah, I mean, it was it was like way over the top watching on a regular size TV set on DVD. It just was very weird. Yeah, I think the Bond series really lucked out 
in that they started the series in color. Yes. And that's going to, to most modern audiences, that's going to sound like a wild, stupid statement. But if you look back in the early 60s, movies were still being produced in black and white. And yeah, I, I've seen I've seen an argument that um, if if Fleming had been uh, successful right. in, in in bringing Bond to to the big screen in one of his attempts, probably it would have been shot in black and white, and it would have ended up with a very very uh, different uh, history of Bond films. That I mean, way. in yeah. 1965, the last John Wayne War film was shot in black and white, and it was a huge A list production directed by Otto Preminger co-starring Kirk Douglas and all these people. And it was shot in black and white. And you know what? It looks great in black and white. Um, one thing I've noticed about a lot of movies that are color movies now, it's like the colors seem like washed out. And it's like, I almost get the impression the cinematographer wishes they were shooting it in black and white, but they can't. So we'll just try and make it as close to black and white as we can in color. Um, so yes, if um, you're right. Bond lucked out by having it being in color right from the start because it was probably an open question. And if Columbia had been smart enough to grab the Bond series before UA, they probably would have shot black and white. So who knows? And I think the, the techniques that they were using, especially makeup um, and lighting and set design in the early color films, um, they were still using black and white techniques, right? So. Yes. It, everything's a little bit too heavy-handed or not heavy-handed enough, um, depending on whether it's the sets or the makeup. Um, and and Bond did look out that they had a couple of the the crew the the people they picked to make that film out of the gate had got through those learning curves with other films. Ted Moore, in particular, I would say, I mean, he's a very underrated contributor to those early movies. I think. Yeah, I, I mean, talking about uh, watching films in 4k or, or whatever format you know you you just think that you know it's not that long ago that we were watching films on vhs and the quality of vhs was bloody awful right <laughs> and uh, you know and nobody complained about that you know it's like blockbuster was uh, you know sh- shifting god knows how many uh, rental movies a night and uh, um uh, you know People just wanted to watch movies, and to a certain extent, it doesn't matter uh, about the, the quality of, of the image as as long as you can understand what the hell's happening in the film. You know, and- the, the battle at that time was between VHS and Betamax, and and by all accounts, Betamax provided the superior picture, but VHS won out. Um, I mean, it's just strange. It just it just happened that way. And there's still fans out there that like watching the Bond movies on Laserdisc because that was how they <laughs> first watched them, right? I had um, yeah. yeah. And also, some of the Bond home videos, depending on which one you get, have altered sound effects. Um, yep. So, like, I've seen some that have, like, the original sound effects, and I've seen others, the same movie with a different format, where the sound effects are entirely different. So, like, with Thunderball, with the altered sound effects... When uh, Largo goes to the Spectre meeting, so like when that that panel goes back, there's this in the altered version. It's like chunka chunka chunka. It's like it sounds like there's a steam engine like powering that thing. Like why did they make this change? I, I don't get it. I you know I've noticed that too, and I find it baffling as well because it's not even so much that somebody thought to go back and tweak some of the special effects, maybe kind of George Lucas the, the films a little bit. But the things that they chose were so strange. And I'll tell you this, 
I don't know if you guys have had a chance to see it yet, but the the video that was shown at the Honor Majesty Secret Service 50th anniversary, a uh, mm. fellow named Tom Waldick and his uh, company yep. now is called Passions Fruit. They did a spectacular video that, and they just put it online so you can you can find it. Um, you know, a, a remix of the film, like a, like a video, just a tribute of the film. And I remember thinking it was absolutely flawless. And the only thing that I probably would have done differently is that, and he did a lot of his own custom sound effects, uh, you know, in, in places of certain things in the film. The only thing I would have done differently is that he left in that machine gun sound, the, the, the drive-by at the end, that pop, pop, pop sound effect that they changed it to. And I thought that was such a weird thing to change because it sounds, the punch is so lessened, I think. And I kind of wish he changed that and then, and, and pumped up like a different kind of sound effect. I've always been baffled by that one. Yeah, there was, the, I know they did, they redid um, some of the effects for um, the DVD releases. And, and I think those ultimate, uh, those ultimate uh, editions had some of the changed sound effects as well. Now I can understand why they had to do that for some of them when they were had mono masters and they needed to create stereo or Dolby from it. Um, so it was easy just to take it was easier to take the dialogue tracks, the music tracks, and redo the SFX, the, the the audio effects. But yeah, you're right, Joe. The artistic decisions, shall we say, of the ones they picked. It's almost like did they have a limited audio library or something that they you know <laughs> right, that was right. the closest they could do. And, and again, like like the scene you mentioned, the Thunderbolt scene. Again, the whole point of that scene is that he's quietly slipping into another room, so to pump up the sound effects out there, alert the whole the whole building that he's walking through a door doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> All right, speed round. So, got a couple of tweets here. Um, hashtag ask bond so if you're listening and you want to ask us a question to we'll probably try and analyze your question rather than answer it that seems to be how this goes <laughs> um so joseph uh asks um about the use of the word time uh well in the title like with bond driving his 80s aston martin in this film perhaps the phrase links the past to the present parts of the movie thoughts uh god uh that is too cerebral for me. Well, I've seen a fan theory that suggests that Rami Malek is a lot older than he really is. Um, uh-huh. In other words, he is somehow suspended aging or slowed aging or something like that. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure I buy that, but uh, it's an interesting thought. Uh, you know, I just on my girlfriend and I, uh, we're, we just started our vacation up in Cape Cod. And so we had a couple hours to talk about it. And we, we kind of had a little back and forth. Is it, is it is it no time to die? As in, this is no time for this? Or literally, I don't I can't slow down to take the time to die or something. Either either way, I think it's a little... Do you know, I, I had that conversation with my wife the other day. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, are, there are a couple of ways to interpret the title, yeah. Mm. Um, so when it was announced, you know, I went through all of the bad puns of No Time to Die on Twitter. You did, um, yes. Yeah, I did. It annoyed, it, it annoyed a lot of people. Um, and the one with the, all the all the different puns on no time to, you know, whatever. Um, my favorite was no time for pie with Roger Moore and Akish, but that, that might be <laughs> somewhat different. Um, 
the one that got the most likes was I thought the weakest, which was "Do you expect me to die? No, I don't have time." With a picture of yes, Connery yeah. on the laser table. <laughs> <laughs> which I, which I yeah, was just, pathetic. Pathetic, and it was the one that it was must, most. It, it must be light, just because your your comedic talent is just wanting. <laughs> so you know why? It's because it's got Connery in it. Yeah. There's another recurring fan theory. It's like Malik is really playing Doctor No, and um, now this star, best I can tell, back on CBS. the when CBS on its website just had this toss, throwaway line saying, Rami Malek's playing Dr. No in, in the new James Yeah, and, and, that, and that was based on, on, an, on an, a television interview he did, wasn't it? Because and yeah. when he said that he liked Dr. No. Right, and, and, and CBS even took it down. They corrected it and took that reference out. But I don't know if that's what caused it, but it's still in the fan circles. It's still kind of rolling around out there. Mm. You know, you know, it's funny, honestly, even back before Spectre, you know, I remember having conversations with fans and we had a little back and forth about whether or not because this Daniel Craig, you know, it was a reboot. These are prequels. Mm. We started with Casino and we started to go back and forth. Like, does that mean we will someday see Tracy? Does that mean? And we, we kept asking each other, like, how how this would relate to the Fleming books, uh, to which I think we kind of sort of agreed not much. But we did sort of start – there was a theory that was sort of knocked around that at the end of this Craig tenure, it would literally end with him in and Emma's office being sent off to Jamaica to, to, to take care of somebody who's messing with rockets or something to that effect. So I, I've, had, I've heard this theory sort of years ago that eventually this would sort of lead up to the beginning, the dawn of the original franchise. So, so he, he gets sent to Jamaica to uh, deal with somebody who's messing with Russian-made nuclear-powered rockets. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Called Skyfall. Skyfall 2. <laughs> well, those rockets, the, the United Nations named that Russian project Skyfall. So yes, reference. I like, I like somebody on Twitter uh, sent us a theory that the, the movie should end with Bond walking into the Ambassador's Club. Oh, to like completely that. loop it back okay. to the stuff that no, which I thought but was quite brilliant. Being given a mission to go after Doctor No. Yeah, but, but okay, but there's something about all this kind of looping stuff around because um, I, I remember after Quantum of Solace and Mark Forster was saying that he he had thought you know he'd filmed a different ending but didn't use it because he, he said it would have uh, tied. The next director into whatever that he'd uh, ended the film on, and he didn't want to tie somebody's hands. But then, in Skyfall, it ends with you know in, in M's traditional office and all all that kind of stuff. And so um, Sam Mendes had a very different approach because at that stage he he wasn't going to right. return. And then he did it again in Inspector, didn't he? And it's kind of forcing forcing the next director's hand. Well, here's what you could do. It's like, you know, this is if you had novelizations, which which they don't do anymore. So it's like, okay, it's like Craig wakes up and suddenly, like, he feels different somehow. He looks in the mirror. I've got dark hair instead of uh, blonde hair. And I'm a little taller now. And he goes... I'm a woman. <laughs> no, no, no. In other words, he's showing Connery instead of Danny Craig. And, and oh, I feel different somehow. No, and, but it feels right somehow. And just, you know, 
obviously a ridiculous notion, but um, <laughs> but as long as we're like tossed around these silly ideas, let's you know let's go for it and like really do it. So I, I wouldn't be shocked by anything at this point, honestly. I, I sort of feel like the filmmakers are, <laughs> yeah. are you know, they're, they're kind of throwing all sorts of things against the wall to see what sticks, and uh, you know, I. I, I really wouldn't be shocked by anything, especially when you notice that. I mean, and I'm sure we all have that they tend to follow trends. And I remember one of the things I noticed in Skyfall was like, especially at the end, they did the big reveal of Money Penny as opposed to introducing new characters or, or introducing right. us to old characters. They rather do that little twisty reveal, you know, that you, you would see like in a Nolan film or whatever. And they do that again, tried to with Spectre with Blofeld. So, yeah, I. I I wouldn't really put anything past them at this point. If if they thought it would it would it would it would get the crowd cheering to 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 tie back into Doctor No somehow, I wouldn't be surprised. And obviously the character being Doctor No and No No being a noun in the title. Potentially. Uh, right? so so Bond says to uh Remy Mar- Malik, uh, are you a doctor? And he says, No. <laughs> it's time to die. <laughs> Uh, so to answer Joseph's question uh, probably not (laughs) (laughs) I forgot there was a question here yeah (laughs) next we got three of these so the second one um, what a brilliant twitter handle medium atomic weight um, asks um, many Bond girls have claimed their character is a new type of Bond girl from the rest which character is actually most deserving of that claim Anya Anya deserves it more than others because she was the template it's like ever since then that's that's when it started I've seen that documentary that long documentary it's like Lewis Gilbert oh she's is equal in every way and <laughs> oh Russian. This is such a brilliant idea. It's like I'm watching. It's like um, you know, there was this TV show where an American worked with a Russian every week, right, Lewis? Oh, I guess you didn't know that, but um, so that's when it started. And you know, Anya, she deserves it more than any other. I would say. I I would definitely agree with that. I feel like you know when I I, I love the all the Bond women, and then but it, there is a mild frustration when you watch. Uh, like the Bond girls are forever documentary and every single solitary one of them say, well, she was different. She was different because she was a little more Bond's equal. So I, I think the, the question is spectacular and, and I, I would agree with your answer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the question just what makes me want to cry. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's just uh, every new Bond girl is this time. It's different this time, this time, this time. And it's, uh, I have no I, I have no idea who, who is is most deserving of it, but uh, uh, I, I'm kind of bored of the comparison. Well, to be honest, I think the least deserving of it was Madeline Swan because she was saying the same. You know, uh, Leah was saying the same thing. Oh, she's Bond's equal. It's like, oh, be quiet. Have you seen any other James Bond? <laughs> <laughs> talking points the publicity department gave you it's like she's like the least deserving of it so i mean like holly was an astronaut um <laughs> you know, for example she's more deserving it than Leia sudu is um yeah, I, i'm not gonna go down the list it's there's yeah 
I, I've always wondered who they're looking at when they say that. When they always say that she's different than the others, I'm always saying, well, which others are we talking yeah. about? Like Stacey Sutton and like the second half of Tiffany Case? Right. Well, Barbara Broccoli, there was she once did an interview. She said, "We don't do any Bond women with a with a thing you, you thing you write on." It's um, to build up current Bond women. You know, they end up tearing down previous Bond women, which is like yeah. great idea for marketing your current movies. Oh, our previous movies were shit, but we're, 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 <laughs> oh, we're that's, that was that was that was the entire campaign for Diamonds of Forever, wasn't it? Which is, yeah. oh, forget that shit we did last time. We're back on track again now. <laughs> Which doesn't age, that didn't age well, that tech idea, did it? But, uh, no. Um, I, I would throw in there possibly Electra, just as a, depends if you classify her as a Bond girl or not, but uh, I've been different to uh, all the other Bond girls before. Well, um, actually making her a villain, that was. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or making the main Bond yeah. girl a villain, yeah. 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 But, you know, and, and you've also got to think about back to the books, where where many of the women are, are pretty strong characters anyway. So, uh, you know, the, the, this this myth about uh, weak uh, Bond girls is well, uh, I, I think. I, I just remembered the I just remembered the word clipboard. Barbara Broccoli said, "We no longer have Bond women holding clipboards." Well. Holly was holding a clipboard when Bond first moved, but she's also an actor yeah. for crying out loud. So are you know, Oh, and also a woman. Yes. Right. And also Harvey <laughs> Harley is like never specifies who she's talking about. She said, Well, yeah. I don't in, in the same interview, oh I don't mean uh, I don't mean Honey Rider. No, she was great. And uh, no, I don't mean Pussy Galore, she's very independent. Um like, well, who do you mean? But she never says. I, you know, I've always felt like I wish the marketing department over at Eon would kind of change their tactic a little bit. You know, one of the things I've sort of commented on is I wish they would stop marketing James Bond as as trying to keep up with the other blockbusters, but rather try to sort of position him as as, as sneaking into your father's liquor cabinet. Like like this is the best kept secret you you youngins don't know about yet. And and in the same way, I wish they would. <laughs> I wish they would stop talking about the new, better Bond girls and stop acting like they're apologizing for something in the past. Rather, they should really be poising themselves or presenting themselves as pioneers of strong, strong women. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think they, you know, if I think about um, characters like Mary Goodnight, even though it's my favorite Roger Moore film, then uh, yeah. But I, I, I think I think characters like that were the exception rather than the rule. Well, in Tiffany case, at the beginning, she's like a split personality. In the beginning, she's tough and independent. And then in the second half of the movie, she suddenly is like, you know, well, I've got red hair, so I'm going to do a Lucille Ball impression. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, the other thing, I mean, in terms of chasing blockbusters, I know that's not what we're talking about. But, okay, we've made we essentially can't ever do a from Russia with love again. And so like, you know, like you only live twice is now like the floor for like what bond movies are, are going to be. Um, not necessarily space, but in terms of spectacle and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good question. Isn't it? All 
right, so last one, and this is this is a good this is a thinker, right? Um, from Stingray. Um, when it comes to Bond's least admired attributes, what's the one thing that you'd like to see him improve on? <laughs> clothes, gr- clothes, grooming, style, food, shoes, cars, whatever you'd like to see to get better. Uh, what would I like to, to see? You know, I would say I wouldn't actually specify a specific trait in in terms of what was specified in the question. I would say just accept that he's. You know, just accept it, and it's, it's it's almost like they're apologizing for the cars and the clothes and stuff in recent movies, and just like you know, Bond, you know, look, they're really into trying to explain why Bond is, and you know what? Stop explaining. Just you know, Bond mm-hmm. is is. It's, you don't need to know a whole lot. Just stop apologizing for it. Yeah, I think that's it's one of the reasons that I. Uh, reasons I don't really like origins movies because uh, you know, especially if it's an established character, because you know um, you're used to this character just being the way that uh, he or she is, and so you know, your your mind can uh, do the rest and you know imagine or not imagine how they actually got to being like that. But um, I think that. Um, origins movies and trying to explain somebody's background don't really do that character very much of a service because uh, you know very often like in uh, Inspector for example you know where we've got this whole um, foster brother thing and then it's just trying to connect all the elements together and and it's like I think uh, I'm not. I'm not all that up on Batman, but I, I think they tried to do that in in Batman uh, uh, as well. But it, it's like uh, that all the different threads of somebody's life they try and connect to try and explain the character. But in reality, uh, I don't think I'm an exception here, but I, I'm, it's possible that I am. But I, I've got lots of threads in my life which uh, aren't connected to anything. They're just threads that have gone loose. And, you know, try, <laughs> trying to uh, bring those all back together to explain me, well, you're fucked. <laughs> go, go back to the 1960s. Okay, Dr. No. Okay, he's apparently been a spy for roughly 10 years because there's a, a line about he'd had the Beretta for 10 years before he has to give it up. Um, you know, so he's like, he's, you know, he's he's established. He's like, you know, he's he's M's best operative. It's like, we, and it's like, off he goes. Like, okay, Bond, I need you to do this. Oh, yeah, let me, I'll make you change your gun, but other than that, you know, off you go. And it's like you look at TV shows at the time, it's the same thing. It's like they're established, they're like the best at what they do, and like, okay, you know, you, they don't fumble around like, oh, I'm still learning my job. Um, now, with a TV show, you can then have episodes where someone runs into someone from their past, and you can work some of that material in that way. But in terms of like, when the show begins, they're like, you know, they're a badass. It's like, you know, they, you know, we don't, and, and David, you mentioned Batman. So like the Adam West TV show yeah. in the first, there's this passing line where he says about how his parents were killed by dastardly criminals. And that's it. That's all they mentioned. Right. Um, 
you know, it's set up, you know, they got the hotline, you know, at, at Wayne Manor and the commissioner calls and he's got a problem. Yeah, but I, th- I think in, in, in at least two of the films, they, they've shown his parents being murdered. And I don't know, I, I'm not, yeah. I haven't seen them all. So. The damn pearls every time, you know, like, you know. Like, <laughs> I think, I think the Waynes are the most murdered people on film. <laughs> Martha, Martha, Martha. <laughs> If I have to see those pearls bounce on the sidewalk one more time. <laughs> so, Joe, as you actually like wrote the book on this stuff, almost, um, what, what are your thoughts about an area of his life that could be improved? I, I would agree wholeheartedly with Bill and what, what everybody's been saying so far, is, and, and honestly, stop apologizing. It's an interesting thing, I think, when, especially with James Bond, because you know he's he's a hero that we've been we've we've known for for decades i mean literal generations and you know I, when you watch other films other heroes i think we sort of go through phases where sometimes people want strong confident capable heroes who can take control of a situation and and not apologize for anything then we kind of go through eras where we want our heroes to be a little flawed we want to see the chinks in the armor and know what makes them tick uh, so I, I understand the, the the back and forth a little bit, but I, I do feel strongly stop apologizing for James Bond being James Bond. I can't think of any other film genre that has perfect characters and it actually works. I mean, every interesting film has flawed characters. Gangster films don't try to make their gangsters nice guys. Any any other kind of crime drama, we don't want nice guys all over. We want flawed characters. James Bond has his share of flaws, and 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 again, there I almost feel like defining what a flaw is to you or I. That's a different conversation. But the idea that we want to have a perfect hero who is super nice and knows all the nice things to say and knows how to treat this current generation. Uh, that save that for something else. If, if you want perfect characters, yeah, okay. save, save, save it, save it for the fairy tales. It's okay when you're five years exactly old. Exactly right. I mean, if Star Wars. If you think you want a, a, a perfect character who doesn't make mistakes, and you think that's going to be interesting, well, you good luck with that, and see how that goes. I, I, I really don't. I, I don't. It wouldn't interest me. It would not interest me to have a character who who does not have certain foibles. So yeah, I, I say just leave him as is. I'll give you an example one. Superman. That's a great example. And I like Superman films and I like Captain America films. That's a different film. I'm not going to see James Bond for the same reason. I'm going to go watch Captain America. Right. Right. But in terms of like perfect characters with no foibles and. Right. But but the thing is when Superman's done well, he has foibles, but he overcomes them. I mean that, but I, I agree. Superman is harder to write just because he's smarter than you and he's better than you. And so it kind of makes it hard. But, I mean, Alan Moore once wrote a Superman story, and what they were doing was essentially closing off one era because they were going to reboot. And it was a great story. I mean, this is in in the comic books. It's not a movie. And, you know, I mean, there's material there. Even with Superman, you can do things. well, in fact, with Superman, I, I don't remember if it was the first or second movie with Christopher Reeve, and uh, he he was uh, torn between saving the world or, or saving Lois Lane, and so he had to uh, go back in time to, as far as I can remember, it's a long time was, since I saw it. Him, but, uh, yeah, he, he, it was the first yeah. one, was it? Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, so that's so, an origin story, uh, so that doesn't yeah. count. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I was thinking about this question this morning, and I thought um, the line in Skyfall, everybody needs a hobby. I'd say Bond, you know, doesn't really have any hobbies, does he? Um, uh, you know, Goldfinger. Cars and, cars well, and, and gambling. <laughs> But none you can really do in a movie because it's like, oh, okay, we're going to show Bond play 18 holes of golf. You know, it's well, like, the, well, yeah. I'd say, you know, Goldfinger, we had that, plays golf on Goldfinger. And then in Majesties, we see him carrying his clubs, but then yeah. it kind of it disappears from the series after that. Yeah. I, I actually would agree with that wholeheartedly, frankly. I kind of wish that we would see the, the behind the scenes James Bond like we used to. I feel like James Bond at one time was defined by the fact that he would play golf was always in a casino would would scuba dive just because he likes to and now it seems like these these stories are so action film driven that you know they again these have to be sort of action movie blockbusters we don't have time to see him in the moments of leisure and i really wish that they would again yeah it, it, and the first time we see him in dr it, no he's on his off hours he's you know gambling and the and there's that byplay with sylvia trench but all of this is in his off hours until the guy comes with his business card I, I mean, uh, it, it's one thing that I, I, I've won, wondered uh, before is is that that they pro- probably with Goldeneye, I, I would say they the films became action films rather than anything else, and um, and the problem with action films is you every time you produce an action film, and every every time somebody else produces an action film, you need to ramp up the action to beat that, and so uh, you know it it. it it just gets very, very difficult, I think, to to continue along that path. But how, how do you how how do you wind that back, or how do you become something else again, uh, something else that stands out from the crowd? I I personally feel like either you mentioned the scene in Honor Majesties. All he did was show up with his clubs, and then he get kind of taken off, you know, back to the plot again. I I frankly would like to see a little bit more than that because anything. I remember seeing the film in the, uh, what was it? The Brosnan film, the Thomas crown affair. And I remember the the scene in there where he's playing golf and it's a great moment because it's, it's a character study. You're, 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 you're getting that he's bored. He wants to, to throw some big high stakes, uh, risks in, in this game because he's bored. And it, it tells you something about the character. I don't see why you couldn't go back to something like that. I mean, I remember feeling back then, why why do I have to watch a separate film to see James Bond on the golf course again? Right. And he, so, wrecks, his, yeah, and yeah, he, yeah. And he wrecks his expensive sailboat for the same thing, right? Just like, because he felt yeah, like- exactly right. And again, these are character study movies. You know, what you could do is like, you could show him playing the last hole of 18 and he's like playing a guy for a lot of money. And he beats the guy, he's won and they're going to the clubhouse and then- he gets a call or something, he gets diverted, and then he gets carted off or something like that. You could still establish he plays golf, he gambles, and then get back to the main plot. Um, but nothing like that ever happens. Oh, I better write that down. But um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eon, by the time this is published, Eon will have it in their, in their notebook, yeah. in their clipboard. On their clipboard. Yeah. For 126, yeah. <laughs> But I think we might get to see a little bit of that. Bond 25 with um, Craig doing his spearfishing. Uh, Craig's Bond doing his spearfishing at the start of the film. Yeah. So, or after the pre-titles, we should say. Um, but yeah, we don't have that, what does he get up to when he's not busy at all. 
Um, the only other thing I can think of, you know, is obviously Roger Moore's Bond is introduced with him making an extravagant cup, an extravagantly complicated espresso. Um, yeah, I, I, I said I watched Live and Let Die the other day, and the the espresso that he makes looks very, very bad. There's no crema on it. <laughs> is that all it does? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They did spend a lot of time in focus on that cup of coffee, didn't they? I wonder yeah, if like, yeah, yeah. Harry Saltzman had some back-ended deal with the guy that made that machine. That's quite usually possibly, how these yeah. things went in the back yeah. of the day. I, know, I, I think I've said before on this podcast that that, uh, that particular model of, of espresso maker, because it's manual, it's very, very difficult to produce a decent cup of, cup of coffee from it because you need to be uh, very consistent with, with the pressure, and it, it's difficult to do. All right. I thought that was going to be a difficult question to cover, but I think we nailed it. Um, so that's it for Ask Bond. Uh, we haven't done one of those for a while. Usually we end up taking the questions apart rather than answering them. So that's a refreshing to actually have some, <laughs> to have some answers to those questions. I think that about does it for us this week, gentlemen. Um, we ran way over as usual. Um, that's mm. what always happens. It, this is like uh, being James Bond and Friends episode one, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> That's perfect. So I'd like to extend my warm thanks to David, Bill, and Joe for joining us. Um, and we'll hope to see you all next time. Yep. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me again. And uh, good to talk to you all. Especially you, Joe. Thank you, guys. I've spoken to you before. Yeah, same here. It's a thrill to be here. I love I loved the podcast, so it's been a thrill to be on it. Thank you. Kiss me. You are I'm your bomb girl. I'm your bomb girl.